G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Another conversation ahead you'll be able to get your teeth into. I think you'll find it's informative and there might be questions on your lips as to how some of the dots are joined together when it comes to Christians and persecution that happens in so many contexts around the world. While the focus of the world's media moves from one tragedy to the next, the challenges that persecuted Christians face around the world can get lost in the details. Well, a focus today on how Christians are faring in the Middle East and a number of other contexts where there's been conflict and political change. Now, you might not know it, but Christians are often under extreme pressure. Where often as religious minorities, they become the victims when nations are in conflict. Well, our main focus today will be on the Middle East, but our thoughts may also extend to other contexts like issues that you might have been seeing in the media all about Spain, or there are some unknown or uh, very less publicised issues of things that are going on in West Papua, or in Africa, or in Burma. You may have a question about Christians and conflicts around the world. Well, we'll do our best to offer insights today to give us a picture of how Christians are faring under persecution and conflict. Elizabeth Kendall is back with us. She's an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She served as the principal researcher and writer for the World Evangelical Alliance Religious Liberty Commission for seven years until 2009. These days she's independent and she's an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of <clears throat> Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology and is Director of Advocacy at the Christian ba- uh, Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom. A special welcome back to you, Elizabeth Kendall. And thanks for having me back, Neil. Elizabeth, always enjoy our conversations and I know that listeners appreciate the way that they can certainly get an enlarged understanding of things as they are happening around the world when it comes to Christians who are under persecution. We are going to focus today on the Middle East, but Elizabeth, when you think of the contexts around the world where Christians are under pressure, uh, which nations come to mind for you? Uh, The most serious situations probably... Well, North Korea has been serious for a long, long time. You've got a, uh, well, probably one of the cruelest and most repressive regimes in power today exists in North Korea, and it's absolutely forbidden uh, to to be a Christian there. You have to worship the Kim regime. We've also got a number of uh, what I would call crisis situations where uh, the situation could deteriorate with extreme, even genocidal violence. And there's the, that situation is uh, the case in northern Iraq today. It's also the case in Central African Republic. Uh, there is a looming threat looming over Ni- Nigeria, particularly northern Nigeria. It's very uh, delicate at the moment in Egypt for the Copts. It's always delicate in Pakistan 
and it's increasingly getting worse in India. I mean, I could go on for ages. This really is a spreading, uh, growing and intensifying phenomenon around the world. Normally I talk to you about one of your prime motivations towards the end of conversations we have about persecuted believers. And one of your prime motivations is to bring to the attention of Christian believers that there is an importance of prayer in the way that we approach God, entering into the courts of the Lord uh, on behalf of persecuted believers. And sometimes we feel like we're a little removed down under and away from the rest of the world. Uh, But this is one of your prime motivations. What is your encouragement as we get the conversation underway today about what it means to pray for persecuted believers? Yes, well, it was integral to my calling from the Lord into this work. Uh, It was my understanding. I became very aware of the fact that the church did not know what was happening to their own brothers and sisters around the world. And if you don't know what's happening, because the media doesn't tell you, because the media really, really couldn't give a damn, to be frank, about the persecution of Christians, if you don't know then how can you pray? And this is why Christian media is so important, and I'm constantly encouraging Christians to to really get involved with Christian media because Christians need to know what's happening around the world. And so that's why I got into this ministry so that I could inform churches, inform believers what is happening to their brothers and sisters so they could pray strategically and have a strategic uh, response to it because you know nowhere in the bible does does it say that the world will save the church it's actually the other way around the world never saves the church the church needs to respond to the issue of persecution and in doing that the world gets to see that that the church as it should be um, it's really really important it's a really important part of god's work in the world in the days in which we live Elizabeth, let's start to talk about one of the primary focuses that we'd like to uh, discuss today, uh, the Christian crisis in the Middle East. And for a long time, uh, this has been a real passion of yours, uh, because when you talk about the Assyrian people, uh, we're sort of talking about something that's a little bit uh, a little bit uh, not quite so clear. Uh, when you talk about the Assyrian people, what do you mean by that? I'm talking about the uh, descendants of those people to whom Jonah preached <laughs> a long, long time ago when God sent Jonah to Nineveh. Uh, Jonah preached the gospel. Uh, well, he preached repent and believe or be damned, basically, to the people of Nineveh, this great mighty warrior nation that had brought misery to to you know nations all around including you know Jerusalem and in uh, in Isaiah's day and uh, Jonah preached and they believed and the Assyrian nation uh, repented on mass and became followers of Yahweh now according to the history uh, the Assyrians at that point <clears throat> developed relationships with Jerusalem and uh, upon uh, following the scandal of Jesus Christ they believed um, and the Assyrian uh, Church of the East is actually the first denomination ever established. So the, like the Armenians, the Assyrians are part of that very, very early church, uh, that, and they are the indigenous people actually of northern Iraq. 
So they were there before Islam came through, before the Arabs and the, and the, uh, the Turks swept in. Uh, they are the indigenous people of the Nineveh region. Um, the city of Nineveh, which was their capital, uh, is, was just on the opposite side of the, the Tigris River to the city of Mosul. And uh, it's why when you've seen, often seen pictures on the news back when ISIS was in Mosul, you saw uh, these images of Assyrian artefacts being destroyed. These were artefacts that went back not just centuries, but millennia. Um, the very, very ancient people that um, turned to Yahweh at the preaching of Jonah and then became Christian in the first century and are now just the remnant of a remnant of a remnant and struggling to survive. So when we have those images in our minds, those news reports of ISIS fighters destroying artefacts uh, throughout northern Iraq and, uh, and in Syria, those artefacts primarily as artefacts of the Assyrian people, of the Assyrian church, uh, were really uh, bringing into focus uh, this way that, uh, that ISIS tends to want to destroy that sort of Christian history. Well, it's all history. I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the material they were destroying goes back even older than the Assyrian Christian history. It was really ancient, uh, ancient stuff. But um, yes, so the whole, this is one of the myths about the war. The, the myth is that the Christians are just collateral damage. They're just unfortunately stuck in the middle. And unfortunately, there's this unintended consequence that they're getting, uh, getting killed. But no, they're actually being targeted. They are being uh, crushed and they're being swept away uh, under the cover of conflict. And uh, everything not just the human beings, but all their culture and their history and everything is being swept away. It's absolutely phenomenal. And it's something to, to its shame the world has been pretty quiet about. Historically speaking, too, the Assyrians have been at the receiving end of genocide. Uh, they have received through these couple of thousands of years history uh, all sorts of dreadful persecution. Uh, give us a, a quick update, in a nutshell, uh, the Assyrian history and by way of uh, some of the dreadful things that they've suffered over the, over the centuries. Well, since Islam swept through in the 7th century, uh, from that point it's just been uh, to, uh, really an endless... Um uh, an, an endless train of massacre after massacre because once you've been conquered by Islam, Christians have to live as dhimmis. That is, they have to uh, sign on to this dhimmi pact, a pact of protection. It's called protection, but what it means is that you are allowed to live and you're allowed to live on the condition that you follow all these rules. Uh, you must be humble in front of Muslims, etc., etc. You cannot criticize Islam. If anyone breaks a rule, then protection is withdrawn and jihad resumes. So there's just been an endless, uh, endless flow of massacres right up into the 20th century when uh, the, the Assyrians were killed uh, in and amongst the Armenian genocide. There was another massacre in the, in the 1930s, the Semil Massacre. Uh, which was essentially, I would say, the West had a, had, was complicit in that by having abandoned the Assyrians at the end of World War I. Uh, the Assyrians had been our allies, and uh, we had, a, had promised them a state, and instead we abandoned them in the midst of Arabs, Turks, and Kurds, and about one-third of their number was, uh, were massacred. 
So there's a long, long history of, of slaughter, which is why I often refer to them not as a remnant, but as the remnant of a remnant of a remnant. So, Elizabeth, when we look at the Middle East today and we talk about the Assyrian Christians, and Assyrians where the Christian component of people in the Middle East came from, who do we identify today as having descendants of the Assyrian Christians in their midst? Because we're talking about Iraq, we're talking about the Kurds, we're talking about Syrians. Where else are those Christians from this Assyrian context placed today? Well, the the uh, the heartland of the Assyrian nation is in Nineveh and the Nineveh Plains. But, of course, the Assyrians were once a, a huge empire, so they were spread all across the Fertile Crescent. So quite an expansive area. So you'll find Assyrians in uh, southern Turkey and in northern Syria and all through Syria, really, um, and all through Iraq. Um, in Iraq today, uh, the, the Assyrians really have been completely ethnically cleansed out of Basra in the south and Baghdad in the centre. There are very few Assyrians left in Baghdad. Most Assyrians were forced to flee up north into the Nineveh Plains. And then when ISIS came in, into Mosul, in, tw- in, tw- in June 2014, and then they swept across the Nineveh Plains, ethnically cleansing the Nineveh Plains. The entire remnant, really, of the Assyrian nation was just forced to flee from their homes into Iraqi Kurdistan. So we're, we're looking in the Middle East now. In Iraq, there's a remnant of about 200,000 Assyrians now displaced and destitute in Iraqi Kurdistan. There are many more in Syria because Syria will not go the way of Iraq. And there's quite a lot of Assyrians in the, in the diaspora. There are good-sized communities of Assyrians in, I think, every capital city of Australia. Okay. So in Iraq, things are different to Syria. And yes. uh, when you talk about those Assyrian Christians having had to flee to the north... Uh, then we're talking about uh, Kurdistan, and so uh, Kurdistan has become something of a safe haven for a lot of those Christians. How do you describe uh, the, the movement as they've happened and, uh, and, of course, the difference between Syria and Iraq? Well, Iraq is different because in Iraq the, the Assyrian and the Christians were basically abandoned to their fate. So America made a decision in 2010 that they would withdraw troops uh, there were plenty of warnings uh, that if, if America withdrew its troops from Iraq, uh, there would be uh, probably genocide of the Christian, uh, Christian remnant. And that's indeed what has been the case. So the, the Assyrians and the Christians of Iraq were essentially abandoned by the West, left to their fate, which of course has been absolutely traumatic. In Syria... Uh, it's been different because of the Russian intervention. Now, if Russia had not intervened when it did in September 2015, we would have seen a repeat in Syria um, uh, uh, of what we saw in Iraq. We would have seen a genocide because the government was very close to falling at that time. Uh, ISIS was on the doorstep of Damascus and um, al-Qaeda was advancing into Latakia, which is where the Alawites um, have their homeland. So the situation was critical in Syria, and if 
the Russians had not intervened, I think there would have been a genocide of Christians there too. But they have been uh, saved and the government is um, consolidating, certainly in the West and more and more across the country. And so it's different in, in Syria, although, although terrorism will continue for a long, long time. But the situation in Iraq is absolutely critical. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. We're talking through issues, the Christian crisis in the Middle East. And in fact, Elizabeth Kendall, as our guest, is the author of a book called After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. This is a passion of yours, Elizabeth Kendall. You follow along these things very, very carefully and really bringing things right up to date. One of the issues that's been in the news just this past week has been the Kurdish referendum for independence. As we're talking about Assyrian Christians, those persecuted Christian believers in northern Iraq and in Syria, uh, where does this Kurdish referendum fit in and what sort of effect does that have on Christian believers? Well, I consider this incredibly serious. Now, as as we spoke in the last little session there, <clears throat> the, the Assyrian remnant is now essentially destitute and displaced in, in Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, not only not only are they mostly displaced in Iraqi Kurdistan, mostly around Erbil, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, although they're also in Kirkuk and other areas and cities as well, uh, we have a situation where as the Kurds have been fighting against uh, Islamic State forces, they have then occupied the villages that they've liberated, even when they have been... Uh, been um, fighting alongside Assyrian troops, the Kurdish Peshmerga are very strong and they've been, um, you know, occupying villages, Christian villages. So there's a great deal of concern amongst the Assyrians that they are not going to get their lands back, that their lands are going to be gobbled up in this, uh, what the Kurds hope to be a greatly expanded Iraqi Kurdistan. And that's not what the Assyrians, generally speaking, want. They want an autonomous province where they can, uh, they can live as Christians freely, not under any sort of Islamic uh, rule or Islamic domination. They're not looking for independence. They know that's not going to happen, but they want some, de- some degree of liberty where they can be Christians without fear. And that sort of thing was being talked about with Baghdad, although never really moving forward. It's been because there's just very little support for it, you see. So what we have now is we have a situation where the Assyrian remnant is displaced inside Iraqi Kurdistan and the Kurds have run, had this referendum on independence. Now, they're not going to get it. Uh, And so you have to ask, why did they do this? Why did they have this referendum when they know full well they're not going to be granted independence, especially that they're not going to be allowed to annex oil-rich Kirkuk, one of the richest oil deposits uh, in the Middle East? It's not going to happen. So why did they have this provocative, uh, really provocative referendum? And many analysts believe that uh, that the Kurdish president, um, uh, Bazani, is, was actually trying to increase his leverage in um, 
for when he would have negotiations with Baghdad. He thought if he could have a, a, um, a referendum and 90% would say we want, F, ref, we want independence, then he could go to Baghdad and say, oh, look at all the people. I think you'd better give us all these extra territories that we demand and all these extra rights we demand, and he'd have leverage. But all he's done, I think he's overplayed his hand, Turkey has got troops on the border. Iran is threatening to send, you know, its, its Iranian Shia paramilitaries in if uh, the Kurds make any move to declare independence. Of course, the people now are all excited and the Kurds want independence, but I don't believe that that was uh, ever the intention of their leaders to, to give it to them. And I think that the situation in Iraqi Kurdistan or in northern Iraq at the moment is extremely tense. Uh, Baghdad has, uh, has um, unleashed an air embargo, so closing off all airplane flights into Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, Turkey and Iran are closing the borders. We, and all these are moves to starve and strangle the Kurds into submission. And, of course, we now have the entire Christian remnant stuck in this, in this situation a situation that, that actually, I believe, has the potential to explode into a whole new war, a war that will engulf uh, the whole of northern Iraq, and I'm, I'm deeply concerned about it. Well, we are taking calls. You might have a question about some of the issues talked about today, and uh, we're especially interested in the plight of Christians in the Middle East, but in many other contexts around the world. We're taking calls 1-800-316-316. Uh, let's take a call from Jamie in Tasmania. Hello, Jamie. Welcome along. Thank you. Uh, I have a question for Elizabeth. Yes. Uh, look, um, several years ago, I was reading reports that in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, polit Assyrian political leaders were being uh, systematically assassinated by Kurds. And I was wondering... Uh, if that is still occurring. It's a, a, as soon as a, a political, new political leader emerged and then they were assassinated in an ongoing system. Uh, there have been assassinations of um, Assyrian leaders. There have been assassinations of Assyrian uh, military personnel and academics and elites, not just in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, but also in uh, Hasika, which is in north-eastern uh, Syria. One of the one thing that has upset the Assyrians recently is that the Kurds have interfered in their democratic process. So the Assyrians have elected uh, leaders, um, you know, local governments for their own towns, and right. then the Kurds have come in and uh, ousted them and installed someone uh, by force who mm. will, who they said would vote in the referendum for their for their town or their village to be part of an independent Iraqi Kurdistan. And, and the Assyrians have come out in these towns and protested against this interference, and then they've been told that their, their protests are illegal. So it's, they're very, very concerned about what's happening. Um, you know, we, we hear a lot about uh, how... Um, how moderate the Kurds are in their Islam. We see the women fighting. We know that Kurdish culture is is very, um, you know, it, it's it's almost you could say it's there's a lot of party element in it. They love to dance. They love their music. Uh, they they're happy to drink quite often, and a lot of Muslims view them as as, uh, as infidels. 
But mm. the fact of the matter is, you know, the, the Assyrians have a long history of being very uncomfortable amidst the Kurds and there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear about the future at the moment. Yeah, Jamie. This doesn't get much publicity in the, in the general news media, I find. Well, it doesn't, and that's because the general news media really isn't interested. You know, the, the general news media, mainstream media, has really no interest in what happens to the Christians of northern Iraq. Uh, and if you think about it, most of our mainstream media in, in all through the Western world is very, very left-wing it's at there. These are people who are often have even a neo-Marxist outlook in in their in their ideology, and they are looking forward to a, the post-Christian age when the when Christianity is done away with and we can all be free of it. Now, these people have no interest in the survival of Christians and Christianity anywhere, uh, not not here, and not certainly not in northern Iraq. So, if Christians want to know what's going on with their brothers and sisters. They need to read Christian media, listen to Christian broadcasting. They need to get on, you know, my, my prayer list, for example. They need to sign up to some of the Christian, to a Christian advocacy group and, and get the information because you just don't get it from mainstream media. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks very much, Elizabeth. Thank you, Jamie. Jamie from Tasmania, thank you so much for your input today here on 2020. And uh, just a couple of minutes out from news, uh, let's just pursue this a little longer. Uh, the idea that mainstream media doesn't want to cover uh, the idea of religious conflict, uh, they'd prefer to cover a secularised political conflict, and uh, some of that may be because of ignorance, Elizabeth Kendall, because getting your head around all of this complicated uh, religious stuff, particularly from the Middle East, is very, very difficult. Well, that's, that's also part of the whole equation. Uh, secular journalists really do not understand religion, they, are, they haven't studied Islam, and you see them, uh, you know, saying the most ridiculous things, things that just demonstrate their ignorance of the subject of Islam, the history of Muslim-Christian relations. They don't even understand Christianity, even though they've, they've grown up in a country like Australia or in America. They don't even understand the basics of Christianity, let alone, you know, a, a religion that's foreign to them like Islam. They also don't even understand why someone would suffer for something like a, a religious belief. It, the whole concept is foreign to them. They can understand why someone might suffer for a political cause uh, or a principle, but they just don't get why you would bother suffering for a religion. They don't get it. It's all too difficult, and they're really not interested. And so we just we either get bad reporting, uh, or we get none at all. Elizabeth, let's take another call before we extend our conversation, perhaps into some other context. But uh, Val is in Mackay. Hello, Val. Welcome along. Oh, hi, Val. What hi. are your thoughts today? We're fine, thanks. Um, I'm very interested to hear what you had to say, Elizabeth. Um, we sort of had the impression that the Christians were safer under the Kurds than they had been. Um, that's a comment. And a question, uh, it's a bit off track, but I um, haven't heard anything of Asia Bibi. Can you bring us up to date on what's happening with her in Pakistan? Yes, Elizabeth. thank you, Val. Uh, yes, Asia Bibi is still in prison. 
um, on on death row uh, on the blasphemy charge. There's been another a young man now added to that. He's a young man who's uh, just been sentenced to death for blasphemy. So, you know, the, every now and again, the government of Pakistan you know, gets really upset and says it's going to do something about this law, but nothing ever happens. Um, earlier on this year, a Muslim university student who uh, professed to be an atheist was brutally um, dragged out of his dormitory, a dormitory at the university in broad daylight and beaten to death by, by a mob who accused him of blasphemy. And at that point, the Pakistani parliament said, we're going to bring safeguards into the law, we're going to change the law so it can't be misused, we're going to make it so people who bring false claims will be uh, will be charged and sentenced. We're going to make it so that people who take the law into their hands will be charged and sentenced. But nothing ever happens. And it just goes to show the degree to which the Islamic groups uh, really control everything in Pakistan. And they do it just with this uh, almost an unspoken threat of rioting and of strikes and, and of paralyzing society if any element of Islamization is wound back. And this is why it's so important uh, for the Western countries to realize that they must resist Islamization right from the beginning because it's much easier to adopt some Islamization than it is to roll it back, much, much more difficult to roll it back. So I think, to be honest, the Pakistani government is probably uh, fairly sympathetic with Asia Bibi and probably would like this whole embarrassing affair to end, but they feel there is absolutely nothing that they can do about it. They can't let her, let her go because the Islamists will paralyse the country, uh, maybe uh, a riot or, you know, start some terrorism or something, and yet they don't want to proceed. Uh, it's difficult for lawyers to keep working for her because they're under threat, it's difficult for judges to make the sort of decisions that I think, you know, should be made because they're under threat. And I really don't know what they're going to do. Well, I don't think, I don't know how long they can just keep her in prison in this. It really requires significant pressure from the West with uh, significant uh, sanctions and, and serious pressure, the sort of pressure that's just not happening because there seems to be, once again, very little uh, attention uh, from the West, very little interest, even from politically powerful countries that, that could, I'm sure, have an influence in this situation. But really just everything's about money now. And if there's no money in it, you know, it just seems to get brushed under the carpet. Thank you so much to Val from Mackay and our talkback line remains open 1-800-316-316 you might have your own insight you might have a question to ask about persecution of Christians around the world and before we move on Elizabeth when you talk about those blasphemy laws and uh, let's even connect this closer to home uh, blasphemy laws like anti-discrimination laws because that's what they are are weapons for the persecution against Christians because oftentimes those laws are set up to to ensure that Christians are silenced when it comes to the way that they present their faith. What are your thoughts on even what is closer to home, the idea that we've got, you know, 18C in the Anti-Discrimination, Racial Discrimination Act? I mean, these sorts of things we grapple with here in Australia as well. 
Yes, well, that's really exactly what I was I was getting at when I made that comment. You know, the hate speech laws that that we have or that are coming in and being debated, uh, they really are just like a secular form of a of an Islamic blasphemy law. So if you say something that that hurts the feelings of a Muslim, you can be sued. You can be you know dragged through the courts, and quite often the process itself is the punishment. And here in Victoria, where I live, we have vilification laws. And uh, we've already seen uh, them in effect. And basically, if you say something that vilifies you know, a religious group or, or a people, you can be dragged through the courts and you, it can cost you an absolute fortune. And it, with vilification, uh, truth is not a, not a defense. So if what you say vilifies Islam, even if what you said was absolutely true and can be defended in court, if it, if it vilifies Islam, if it puts Islam in a bad light, you can be sued. Now, the, this, is, this is nothing other than a, like a, secu- a, a blasphemy law dressed up in secular language. And I, it's, I very strongly believe that as soon as the West brings these things in, it's really, really difficult to get rid of it. It's so difficult to wind it back but it's very easy to adopt it in the first place. You know, there's often political reasons why governments want to do this. They score political points on it, but it's very, very difficult to wind back. And, and you know, my opinion is any law that can be used as a weapon against peaceful people is just a very, very bad law right from the beginning. We are taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Linda in Sydney. Hello, Linda. Welcome along. Oh, hello, Neil. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you for taking what are your thoughts, call. Linda? Um, just want to say thank you to Elizabeth for bringing um, the subject to light. It's um, really close to my heart because I'm in, uh, sorry, a Syrian background. Um, you can take your time, Linda. Uh, you're from an Assyrian background, and right. uh, so your well, yeah. your ancestry goes back into uh, this area in the Middle East and the Christian uh, component of people who live there. That's right. So I left home a long time ago. Now I was I was only ten years old, but but I can still see what's happening, and mm-hmm. I feel for the people that are still there. And regards the Kurds, they're not doing any favour to the Assyrians anyway. So they're just looking after themselves, as far as I'm concerned. Um, all they need is to do is take the land back. But we're hoping that Elizabeth and people like Elizabeth can help us out. Well, Elizabeth, uh, you do so well drawing attention to the challenge and uh, there needs to be obvious, uh, obviously diplomacy and advocacy and uh, there are people who are needing to uh, to rise up to uh, to take some level of action and, uh, and obviously political uh, pressure can, can work there too. But uh, you're drawing it to our attention. There's obviously an action that can follow an understanding of what's going on. Now, yes, on my website, um, elizabethkendall.com, there's a tab uh, labelled action. And I've listed there some of the ways that people can be involved in taking action on behalf of the persecuted. So the main ways are to speak out, to give generously and to pray, to become an intercessor, that is to bring the needs of others before the Lord. And there are, quite, there are a lot of ways to speak out. 
you can speak out just by including this in your conversation. Um, whenever the subject of the Middle East comes up, don't be embarrassed to raise the subject of the, the plight of the Christians. People, I mean, and, and to, to, to remind the, the Aussie mums and dads you're talking to that it's the Christians of the Middle East are the ones that are just like us, uh, Christians in Australia, or, um, you know, the same sort of worldview, the same values. And, um, and they are facing uh, a really, really tough times here. They're struggling for their survival, and the media uh, has, just isn't really interested. So bring it into your conversation. Another thing that you can do um, is to write a letter. Uh, uh, some people say write to the foreign minister. My personal preference, although that's a good thing to do, my personal preference is to write to your local member and really make a relationship with your local uh, political member and write to them. And, and if everybody did that, if everybody wrote to their local member, you know, every now and again about, about serious issues like what's happening in, in northern Iraq at the moment, it would actually mean that right across the party room there are people with an awareness of, um, of, of the reality, not just the foreign minister who's already overloaded. So, so writing, uh, writing letters into the editor, uh, contributing to Talkback Radio, all those things um, are speaking up. And then there's also, there are aid groups that are sending aid to Christians that are going to need aid for a long time. They're going to need help with housing, with education. Um, I know Sat7, Satellite7, the uh, Arab language uh, radio, satellite radio, has developed an education ministry to be beaming education into these regions. They need support. Uh, we need to be giving generously like we've never given before. And we need to commit to prayer. I really commit to prayer, not just say, you know, there's been, I think, churches have developed this attitude on prayer where it's, it's a bit of a duty that gets, you know, maybe two minutes of the, of the 90 minute service. We have to get out of that. We have to realize that this is serious business and there are serious needs and we need to come into the courts of the Lord and, and make our case and plead with the Lord for, for his intervention and really take on the burdens of the persecuted. And as I, as I routinely say to people, when you take on the burdens of the persecuted, according to you know, uh, Galatians 6 verse 2, you don't compound your own burdens. You displace them. It puts everything in your life in perspective and suddenly the, you know, the, the yapping dog next door isn't such a problem anymore when you realize how, how much your own brothers and sisters are suffering around the world. It's actually a liberating thing to become a, a committed intercessor for the persecuted and, and it, it makes sense that God would bless you for praying for his suffering children. Um, uh, I believe that very, very strongly. So if you go to my website and look on, on action, you, there's quite a good write-up there. I've, I've, I've spent a bit of time on that. I want, as I said before too, the world is not going to save the church. The church needs to respond. This is church business. Uh, Linda from Sydney, uh, Linda, you were quite emotional about your own uh, family history here. How many generations back does it go to you uh, with your family uh, as Assyrian Christians? Oh, I can't. I am an Assyrian. From mum and dad are both Assyrian, um, and I don't know. Like we celebrate it on New Year's 
uh, an April pass of 6,700 years. So it's, it's quite, goes back quite, quite a little wow. history. Um, so it was just a, a, because I haven't been brought up in that situation, so I don't know how they're going through it. But uh, from what I hear, from what I see, from what um, like people that come from there tell me, it just is not a very nice situation mm-hmm. at the moment. And I, I meant to Elizabeth, praying is all we have, and that's all we can do just to pray for these people and that they'll be saved. And, mm. Linda, and I'm so grateful to wanna be here. thank you so much uh, for being part of our conversation today. And our talkback line remains open, although time is running short, at 1-800-316-316. Uh, let's take another call. We've got Darren. Darren in Brisbane. Hello, Darren. Yeah, hi, how are you? Very well, Darren. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, it's a ch- we live in challenging times, and mm. um, that's very all very good advice this morning. And uh, something that I um, would like to have considered is, um, yeah, we're looking at like uh, a lot of Islamisation of Western countries, but um, I just wonder how much of that has been. Uh, brought on by the Trojan horse of Marxism. Like, when we look at the same-sex marriage issue at the moment, when we look at uh, the issue of um, the, the Safe Schools Project, all these things have come from uh, Marxism. And it would appear that we have secretly been invaded by uh, <laughs> some sort of socialist agenda in the Western countries, which uh, they seem to be using Islam as well. Darren, on the face of it, there appears to be a disconnect and the idea that we might be talking about different subjects. But, Elizabeth Kendall, there are some links to what happens ideologically and the way that Islamization is even linked with some of the social issues that we're encountering here in Australia today. What are your thoughts for Darren? Oh, that's an excellent question, Darren, and you've, uh, you've hit the nail right on the head. We've had, uh, since, uh, since during the Cold War, there's been, you know, what we call the long march through the institutions of the, uh, the Marxist groups. So the whole idea has been that these, uh, Marxist groups would, would, uh, influence, uh, Western institutions by getting inside them and uh, undermining them from within. They've been particularly interested in education and in entertainment and in, in politics, and they've done it. They have been incredibly, incredibly successful. We are seeing the, the results of it today really coming to pass. And, of course, I would really recommend that everyone gets themselves a copy of the Communist Manifesto because if you don't understand Marxism, you will not understand what's happening today. Now, you can download the Communist Manifesto from the Internet. So just Google Communist Manifesto and download it. It's only about 20 pages. You can uh, print that out and have a read. And I think it's part two of the Communist Manifesto really deals not so much with the economics, but with the, the social order of things. And Marx, Marx makes it very clear that, uh, you, that uh, a proper you know, Marxist society, uh, his utopian society, I might add, had to abolish marriage. He saw marriage as nothing other than a legalised form of prostitution. It, it had to um, um, 
uh, the state was to raise the product of all sex of sexual encounters, so you could just have free sex everywhere, and the state would raise the children, um, uh, and also abolish nationality because the the um, the worker has no nationality. He said. So what we have, what Marx was after, was moral and cultural relativism, right? All morality is the same, right? All equally good. All cultures are the same. All equally good. No judgment upon them, except Christian culture, of course. That had to go. So you've got moral and cultural relativism. In moral relativism... This is where the gay lobby, the LGBTI and transgender lobbies have exploited uh, this relativism to, to promote themselves. And the cultural relativism uh, has been exploited by Islam. So, uh, so you're exactly right. Uh, Marxism has laid the ground and prepared the soil uh, for both the, the gay rights movement and Islamization of society. And the only solution now is for a revival in the church, for the church to actually know, uh, to get its apologetic together, to start loving, to start witnessing, to have an answer for those who have questions, to be able to show that there is a better way and uh, to re-evangelize the West. That is the only solution. Darren from Underwood in Queensland, thanks so much for a very insightful question and time is running short. Uh, an important conversation and uh, to point people to your website, Elizabeth Kendall, elizabethkendall.com, uh, that gives people access to a whole bunch of different uh, aspects and dimensions to the sorts of work that you do in alerting us to some of the big challenges that are going on around the world. Elizabeth, just in these last few minutes... Uh, we were talking about other contexts and other challenges, and I know we don't have a lot of time to unpack uh, some of the other challenges that are happening around the world now, but I don't want to miss a mention for West Papua uh, that seems to go very unreported. Uh, just a quick mention for the challenges that are going on in West Papua, because I know this is different to the, uh, to the regular flow of our conversation today, but, but what are the challenges that are going on there? Well, um, I don't think I actually saw any reference to this on the news, but I have been following it because Benny Wender, the exiled uh, independence leader with the West Papua movement, uh, has uh, gathered a petition. Uh, Jakarta knew he was doing the petition and they banned it. So what, happens, what happened was the Papuans took the petition around secretly uh, more than 50 people were arrested during the, the four months that it was in circulation, but he gathered uh, 1.8 million signatures of West Papuans um, appealing for uh, um, uh, a free and fair UN-supervised vote on self-determination and for UN investigations into human rights abuses. Uh, it was smuggled out of the country, and on the 20th, uh, the on the 26th of December, he presented it at the UN in New York. But immediately, uh, Ind Indonesia has refuted it, says it's a hoax. And the, uh, the, uh, the chair of the relevant commission is now denying that he's ever received it. And what I'm concerned about is that the existence of this petition, this new call for attention to human rights abuses 
in West Papua. And remember, the Christian, the people of West Papua are Melanesian and Christian. They're not Javanese Muslims. And they suffer the most extreme uh, racial and religious violence at the hands of uh, the Indonesian military, which is Javanese Muslim and which occupies uh, Papua. And uh, the whole region is closed, so there are no reporters. No one knows what's going on. And I really believe that the military will be furious about this petition. And unless there's serious international attention to it, uh, we're not going to know really what the, what's going on inside West Papua. And I think the military will be furious. And I greatly fear that the Melanesian Christians of Papua could experience a good deal of backlash if the UN doesn't take this seriously and doesn't act on it. It's another point for prayer. As we've been talking about Christians under persecution in a number of contexts around the world and while we mentioned places like North Korea and uh, India, uh, Egypt, Nigeria, Central African Republic, we didn't even get to really uh, talk through the challenges that are going on there. But Elizabeth Kendall, always so insightful to get your uh, understanding of what's going on and particularly to bring this view that Christians need to be prayerful and to take action where it is possible to do so. I'll point people to the website elizabethkendall.com and uh, that's where you can access uh, some more information about some of the topics we've been talking about today. You'll also get some more detail about Elizabeth's books, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today and also After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. It's elizabethkendall.com. And Elizabeth, I know you're off to Europe very shortly to be a special guest speaker at a conference called the Crisis Publishing Conference. And I've got no time to ask you all the details about that except to say uh, uh, we hope that, uh, and prayerfully, I hope that you make a great impact as you're addressing people from around the world who are interested in publishing when it comes to uh, these Christian perspectives on persecution. But thank you so much for being with us again today on 2020. And thank you again for having me, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.